Welcome to the podcast, EMS, History, Myth, and Media. This is the fourth and final episode in the Baron LeRae series. I'll discuss the history of the ambulance, another of the major advances in EMS and emergency medicine, which Baron LeRae brought to the battlefield and which is a critical component in EMS now. Stay tuned. Some of the biggest advancements in EMS and emergency medicine have occurred as a result of the trauma experience in warfare. As I told you in previous episodes, Baron Dominique Jean Leray may be the single most significant of wartime innovators, earning him the title many have given him as father of EMS. Baron Leray brought medical care right to the battlefield. He had medical stations which were quickly set up and torn down, which were mobile. He called these walking hospitals, or in French, the Hôpital Ambulant, and very quickly they came to be known simply as ambulances. Napoleon used artillery mounted on horse-drawn carts on frames with springs, able to move very quickly into position. He called these artillery volant, and the volant meaning to fly. This flying artillery was Leray's inspiration for carts also on spring frames, quickly brought in to load wounded and get them to the Hôpital Ambulant or the ambulance. Borrowing from the flying artillery name, these he called his flying, the French volant, hospitals, his ambulance volant, and forever since, the mode of transport is known as the ambulance. Not to be repetitive, but Leray's inventions languished. Wars came and went, and his innovations were either not known or at least they weren't used. In America, about 60 years after Leray was using his treatment advances, the Civil War occurred. The first couple of years of the war, there were no ambulances used. It was said that after the first Battle of Bull Run, many of the injured had to walk the 27 miles to the hospital in Washington, D.C. for treatment. People were assigned to aid the wounded, uh, but they were basically either musicians or soldiers who were selected because they were not very good fighters. They were reported to routinely hide during the battles, only to go around to look for wounded afterwards, and they freely helped themselves to the medicinal liquor supposedly for use by the injured. When Jonathan Letterman became an administrator at the Medical Corps, he instituted some improvements, but ambulances were still rarely employed. It was not really until the 20th century, fully a century after Leray's ambulance volant uh, were used, that significant numbers of similar vehicles were used again. As with Leray's ambulances not being used for over a century, there was actually earlier use of ambulances than Leray. In 1487, during the siege of Malaga by Catholic monarch Isabel of Castile of Spain against the Emirate of Granada, some ambulancias or field hospitals were used, and soldiers were carried usually by litter uh, to these ambulancias. It was typical that it was over 300 years until this idea was resurrected by Leray. Now let's get on to the 20th century. The first global conflict of the century was World War I, and by this time 
gasoline-powered vehicles were available to replace horse-drawn carts, although horse-drawn carts were still used to some extent in World War I. Mounted onto the frames of Model Ts and other truck chassis, ambulances again carried wounded soldiers to field hospitals. Every conflict since has used various vehicles as ambulances. Significantly, air transport has been utilized to carry patients, but air evacuation will be covered in its own episode later. Let's shift now from military ambulance history to the ambulance in civilian use. Being Americans and being the ethnocentrists we are, we'll concentrate on the history of civilian ambulances in America. The first known hospital-based civilian ambulance service was based at the Commercial Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1865. The Commercial Hospital is now known as the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. Remember the University of Cincinnati. It plays an important role in the history of emergency medicine, but that can wait to a later episode as well. Two years later, in 1867, London developed its first ambulance service. Soon after Cincinnati, other cities around the country developed ambulances, and hospital-based squads were the common rule for many decades. Of course, in the 1860s and 70s, the ambulances were horse-drawn carts, as were the first fire vehicles in use at that time. Horses were kept in harnesses at the ready until, in New York, special drop or snap harnesses were developed, These were suspended above the horses and dropped by pulley from above down onto the horses so that they were ready in about 30 seconds to be deployed. In New York, out of Bellevue Hospital, a Civil War surgeon named uh, Dr. Edward Dalton formed the ambulance service at Bellevue. He developed that drop harness and included medical equipment and medications, some splints, stomach pumps, morphine, brandy, as well as straitjackets. The staff initially was hospital house staff doctors, and then they hired two doctors, Dr. Duncan Lee and Dr. Robert Taylor, to be full-time ambulance surgeons. This was quite popular and busy service. Uh, The year after it was formed in 1870, 1,401 runs were recorded, and 21 years later, by 1891, this increased to 4,392 runs per year. At that time also, there were other hospitals in New York also offering ambulance services, about five of them. After the first two ambulance surgeons, they tried to use new surgical trainees in six-month rotations, but this attempt failed miserably, perhaps because they were paid $50 a month and worked 12-hour shifts with one day off every four weeks. Some of my EMT and paramedic friends will attest that now pay is almost twice that $50 a month. Other vehicles were also used as ambulances. In some cities and in other countries, trains were used and trams were employed to transport patients around the cities. Motors began to replace horses as the source of propulsion. In around 1899, in Chicago, a 1,600-pound motorized ambulance was donated to the Michael Reese Hospital, had a top speed of around 16 miles an hour. For those first few years, the motorized ambulances were using an electric motor, which had a range of 20 to 30 miles between charges. A driver sat up front, and a doctor was in the back with the patient, and there was a tube for them to speak through. In Cincinnati, the Hess and Eisenhart Company 
started building horse-drawn ambulances in the late 1800s and produced their first motor-driven ambulance in 1906. They continued to produce ambulances for decades and were the first in 1937 to introduce the first air-conditioned ambulances. Ambulance squads continued in large cities to be mainly hospital-based and to use physicians as attendants, but this gradually fell out of favor and in small communities, physicians were not commonly used as ambulance attendants. Uh, At about World War II, it was very rare that physicians were sent on ambulances. There came a giant step back after World War II in ambulance pre-hospital care through the 1950s and into the 1960s. Very commonly, especially in smaller towns, there was only one type of vehicle capable of putting a wheeled patient cart in the back the hearse. I can recall, mainly because I'm old and grew up in the 1950s in the small town of New Martinsville, West Virginia, I can recall very well the use of hearses by funeral homes to transport patients to the hospital. The attendants were funeral home employees, virtually none of whom had any training past first aid. Typically, Absolutely no medical equipment, let alone medications or oxygen, were included. And I can recall that they brought my grandmother in from the farm to my parents' bedroom when she became very ill to be closer to the hospital in case that was needed. I was about six, and when she became too weak to get out of bed, the funeral home was called and they sent an ambulance, the hearse actually, to take her to the hospital. Uh, A couple of men came up the stairs and brought the cart, and on lifting her from the bed to the cart, she breathed her last and went limp. The two men, with me looking on from the hallway, quickly carried her past me down the stairs, quickly loaded her into the vehicle, and rapidly drove off. We got a call within about half an hour from the hospital that she had been pronounced dead. I'm sure that other than hurrying and driving fast, those men had absolutely nothing else to offer my grandmother. Many years later, when I was a physician and in charge of uh, some educational programs for the state of West Virginia's American College of Emergency Physicians, we brought a pioneer of emergency medicine to speak at a conference in West Virginia. And he recounted a story from just only a few years after my grandmother's story in the early 60s of two men transporting a patient with pulmonary edema. They put her on the cart and put a belt across her so she wouldn't fall off and loaded her in the back of the ambulance, Uh, the hearse, actually. As was usual, the two attendants climbed in the front, separated from the patient, and when she kept crying out that she couldn't breathe, one of the attendants called back to her to slide the little window beside her open to get more air. Such was the status of emergency ambulance care in those decades. Some states in the 50s and 60s regulated ambulances and dictated minimal minimal equipment for them, but it was not really until the mid-60s that the next big advancement in civilian pre-hospital care occurred. In 1966, a bombshell dropped. The National Academy of Sciences and their National Research Council Committees on Trauma and Shock published a groundbreaking document. Uh, Forever since, known as the White Paper, its title was, quote, Accidental Death and Disability, the Neglected Disease of Modern Society, end quote. In the paper, they stated that, quote, most ambulances used in this country are unsuitable, have incomplete equipment, 
carry inadequate supplies and are manned by untrained attendants, end quote. Quickly, government regulations began to be written and enacted, such as in 1969, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration publishing their Medical Requirements for Ambulance Design and Equipment. Since then, we've had different classes of ambulance vehicles and minimum equipment specifications. The modern era of pre-hospital care occurred also in those late 1960s, that same decade during which the concept of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation along with external chest compression became CPR. The first paramedic training uh, was around 1969, and originally they were called mobile intensive care technicians. In several cities and states across the country, the concept started, and by 1973, the EMS Systems Act came about. In the lifetime, then, of most of you listening to this podcast, ambulances with at least minimal medical equipment, oxygen, and medications, and with personnel trained at consistent levels, have been your experience. The vehicles now typically are designed specifically to be ambulances. They range from sparsely equipped to essentially full intensive care rooms on wheels, especially those used in critical care transports from less capable hospitals to tertiary care or more advanced hospitals. Some specialty ambulances even have been developed, including some with a CT scanner on board to perform the diagnostic head CT to rule out hemorrhage and stroke patients. And this reduces the amount of time that is needed to administer the thrombolytic medications for those patients. So, in this episode, we started in 1487, and though there were centuries between the use or advancements in ambulances, we've come to the modern concept of ambulances and pre-hospital care. The Flying Hospital, or Ambulance Volante, of Baron Dominic Jean Luray have come a very long way since his conception of them. In the past 50 years, since about 1970, we've seen the greatest dispersal of this technology throughout civilian medical care. The established idea in medical emergency of someone call an ambulance is, as we have seen, a very recent development. Thus, we've come to the end of my series of episodes about the medical innovations of the father of EMS, Baron Dominic Jean Luray. Future episodes will cover other aspects of EMS and emergency medicine. Thanks for listening, and I'll try to cover EMS, history, myth, and media, topics which fascinate me and hopefully will be of interest to you.